Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who do not need to repent. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Jim and Carolyn, right there. What an answer to prayer. So good to see you. Absolutely. Successful liver transplant. Chris was showing us the pictures of your smiles afterwards, and we were so rejoicing in that. Thank you so much for being here. What an encouragement in addition to all that we've heard this morning. God is great. Thank you for being here, all of you. Peter Kazmaier, as well, old friends. God really did something in my life this week as I was preparing this sermon. And uh, I think it changed me forever. I sure hope so. I hope I don't relapse into the way I was a week ago because... This week, I've been different because of what God showed me through this passage. And uh, I just pray that this will also leave a lasting impact on your life. It's a very simple scripture, but when you really look at it, it's amazing how revolutionary it is. And uh, this title is called Person of Interest for the series. And it's part three, which is sort of strange, but it's a continuation of something I did two years ago in August of 2017. And that's why the the number three fits in there. So let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be here and to experience this wonderful example of what you're doing through Lily and Angela, through the soccer camp, uh, seeing Jim and Caroline here and just... You do amazing things. Uh, this, <laughs> we waited so long for this, this operation, and, and it, there was numerous disappointments and obstacles along the way, but it happened, and, uh, and now we see the results, and we just rejoice in that. We thank you so much for that. It's so encouraging to us. And thank you for what you prepared for us through your word today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this summer we've been studying the parables of Jesus as recorded in the Gospel of Luke. And in July we focused on four unforgettable stories that emphasize the importance of paying attention. Because in the spiritual realm, attention deficit disorder can have eternal consequences. Well today and next Sunday we're going to examine two parables that emphasize how our Lord pays attention to us. See, when Jesus 
came to earth. He didn't spend his time getting involved in politics. He didn't lobby for economic reform. He didn't start an environmental movement. Jesus was primarily interested in people, individual people. And that was evident in his parables. And the one thing we noticed about his parables is that he wasn't telling his audience what they wanted to hear. He told them the truth, which was often shocking, and it still is. And what I discovered this week in this parable shocked me. After 2,000 years, the teaching of Jesus is still as controversial and as revolutionary as it was then. So fasten your seatbelts, make sure your hymn books are in the upright position. It's time for some shock talk. It says here, now the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. What's going on here? The religious establishment was shocked by Jesus, by how he socialized with sinners. It was scandalous. He's setting such a bad example. Well, in response to their condemnation, Jesus told them a parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? See, the problem with the Pharisees was that they had a faulty understanding of God. They didn't see the big picture. Their theology lacked depth of field. They saw God as high and exalted, sovereign over creation, which is absolutely true. But this supreme being was remote, quarantined in his holiness, demanding absolute obedience, and so failure was not tolerated. That's why the Pharisees stressed condemnation. Somehow they missed the compassion. And so when God became flesh and dwelt among them, full of grace and truth, they were shocked. What's this grace? That's heresy. Well, that gives sinners the opportunity for salvation, and they don't deserve that. Grace was like a malevolent virus that had been introduced into Judaism by a malicious hacker from Galilee. And so the Pharisees were partly right. Yes, God is sovereign, but he's also the good shepherd. Which was absurd to them because shepherds were vagrants and drifters. They were illiterate hillbillies who weren't qualified for a real job that required any skill. Few people would ever stoop that low to take that kind of a job. But that's exactly what Jesus did. Philippians 2 says, Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's shocking. Jesus wasn't like us at all. He wasn't concerned about finding himself or fulfilling his potential. He wasn't burdened with a sense of entitlement. 
He was focusing on humbling himself and denying himself and lowering himself and losing his life for the sake of others. I don't do that. Do you? And in his mission, the shepherd was the perfect role model. Because successful shepherding was all about relationships. It was building trust so that his sheep would follow him anywhere. I once wanted to take some pictures of a flock of sheep in, on Vancouver Island. And at first they avoided me. I couldn't get near. But after about two hours, one of the matriarchs came over and let me pet her. And I was accepted, and I could go anywhere I wanted. A relationship had been built. That's, that's what shepherding is all about. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 10 and 11. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power. His arm rules for him. His reward is with him. His recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who have young. That's amazing. The sovereign Lord has the heart of a shepherd. And that's in the Old Testament, and somehow the Pharisees missed that. So this shepherd has a hundred sheep, which is about the size of an average church, which I think is just about right, because when you have a group like that, people can get to know each other. Large churches are not really flocks, they're more like ranches. They do volume business, but you tend to lose the personal touch. In a smaller church, everybody is important. Absolutely everybody is important. And even if they don't sometimes remember your name, they're always glad you came. That should be our motto. We might not remember your name, but we're always glad you came. I have a terrible time remembering names, especially after I preach. My, my brain is so tired that it's buffering 5%, 7%, 11%, 9%. Sometimes I can't even remember my wife's last name until I'm at about 50%. So we may not always remember your name, but we're always glad you came. Every one of you is so important. And that's what happens in a smaller church. And you notice when someone is missing, when someone's not there. It says he had a hundred sheep and he loses one of them. Well, sheep have a reputation for going astray. You know, once they're grazing, they're not really paying attention. They get so absorbed in grass guzzling, they don't realize they're gradually wandering away from the flock. Wow, that looks like a meadow with clover and wild oats. I've had it with this crabgrass. They wander away. And we see that same tendency in human nature. That's why Isaiah 53, 6 says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Like sheep, we become preoccupied with our appetites. To indulge our cravings will go almost anywhere and do just about anything without worrying about the consequences. It's all good. Besides, everybody's doing it. Like sex before marriage. 
Internet porn. People are gravitating towards greener pastures. We'll do anything to beat our competition so we can get that promotion at work. So we can have a younger trophy wife. We're controlled by our appetites, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, which all looks appealing, but it's no more nourishing than artificial turf. If we are controlled by our appetites and compelled by our addictions, we spend our whole life just searching and searching, hoping we'll eventually find some satisfaction. We, all like sheep, have gone astray. And the problem with sheep is that they have a very poor sense of direction. I'm told that cows will always come home. And that's true, I've seen it. A whole line of them walking along the fence. They say the cat came back the very next day. And then there's racing pigeons. They will find their coop after flying thousands of miles. And then somehow salmon return to their spawning grounds. But that's not sheep. They're not like that. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Well, that's too bad. But it's not terrible. You still have 99. And what is that? That's, that's almost 90%, right? I'm not that good at math. Speaking of math, school is coming, kids, so get ready. Stay in school or you'll end up like me. Well, you only lost one of them. And it was their own fault. They were warned. They didn't listen. They had it coming to them. Rejoice that you still have 99 sheep. But this shepherd does something absolutely shocking. It says, does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it. Well, I'm sorry, but you can't do that. You can't leave your flock out there in the middle of the grasslands. What about predators? There's rumors about a pack of hyenas hunting in the area. In Star Trek, when there's a critical decision to make, Spock will often say, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. It seems to make sense, but that's not Jesus. That's not Jesus at all. The needs of the few matter to Jesus, even the needs of one. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? It doesn't seem right, but that's the kind of God we have. He has so much responsibility, he's got a whole universe to run. There are multitudes of angelic beings worshipping him, but he's willing to set all of that aside, to loosen his grip on glory, to humble himself and to come to earth looking for one lost sheep. Have you ever been lost? Well, it was probably your own fault. When are you ever going to learn? But you know, there's a big difference between being lost and being really lost. I've been lost many times, but I've only been really lost once. And it was definitely 
my fault. It was on a journey I took to the center of the earth. Five of us went spelunking deep into the caverns at Cataman near Edson. My oldest son Michael was with us at the time. And so for about an hour we descended into a cave system that is so vast that armies will sometimes spend a week exploring that subterranean netherworld as part of their training exercises. So we went down for about an hour to about 600 feet, which is over 60 stories, more than half the Empire State Building. And after some time, our two guides decided they want to, wanted to explore another chamber through a small opening. Well, there was no way that you would get me in there. So they left three of us behind and told us to stay put until they came back in about an hour. Well, we waited and kind of got bored looking at the dimly lit gray rocks. And that's when I had a brilliant idea. Why don't we just spend the time exploring the surrounding area? Because, you see, we had a map. It was kind of a map. And if we go in that direction, it should bring us back around to this spot. It seemed like a very good idea at the time. Well, it took no more than 10 minutes for us to realize that we were lost, really lost. We had no idea how to get back. So what do you do then? Well, you keep searching. You look for something familiar. Have we seen that rock before? I don't know. They all look the same. And the more we searched, the more lost we got. And I'll tell you, there's a difference between being lost on the planet's surface, where you've got all kinds of options. You can orientate yourself to all kinds of things. For example, if you're lost in a forest and you don't have Wi-Fi, you just have to look for that glow on the horizon which will take you to the nearest Walmart shopping center. <laughs> but being lost when you're 600 feet underground is totally different. You're in a labyrinth of passageways. You have no orientation. And our time was up. It was over an hour, and then 90 minutes, and then two hours. And that's when our batteries began failing, and our lamps were getting dim. And that's when our friends started to panic. And panic is something very difficult to manage. And it's contagious. I mean, you, you get claustrophobia down there. There's no fresh air. You feel like you're running out of oxygen. And we could just picture the headlines, five people descend into a cave and only two come out. It happens. We were absolutely helpless and our situation was hopeless. There's nothing that we could do to get out of that cavern. And that's when we heard the voice, what are you guys doing here? We told you to stay put. Yeah, well, it was Michael's fault, Michael's idea. <laughs> Man, I've never been more relieved in my life. And when we finally saw the opening of that cavern, I don't know if I've ever experienced that much joy ever since my wedding day. It was just amazing. And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep.
Sometimes when you're lost, you can find your way by trial and error, but in a cavern, you need to be rescued. Someone has to find you. That was our only hope, and that's exactly what's going on in our generation. Without Christ, people are lost, really lost. And often they don't realize it. They just keep recharging their batteries and continue searching, going deeper and deeper into the darkness. For them, it's hopeless. They'll never find their way out by themselves. Well, the good news is that there's someone who is searching for them. Jesus didn't just come to seek the lost. He came to seek and... Save the lost, Luke 19.10. Our son Mark works for, or volunteers for search and rescue on Vancouver Island. And it's ironic because he had a tremendous talent for getting lost when he was younger. He's been lost all over the North American continent. And so now he volunteers with search and rescue. And he was telling us about his first mission. There was a mushroom picker that lost his way and spent a night in the forest because apparently there was no glow on the horizon. And so 50 volunteers were mobilized. They left family dinners, they canceled dates, they walked away from their soccer team at halftime, they set aside all other responsibilities, birthday parties, piano recitals, they turned off their TVs and their computers and answered the call. And when possible, they even put helicopters in the air. That is a lot of effort to find just one lost person who's only got himself to blame, right? It was his fault. But they do that just to find one person, and it paid off because they found their man. Unfortunately, on other missions, uh, after a number of days, the search is called off. The person is never found, and they become a legend like Amelia Earhart or Jimmy Hoffa or D.B. Cooper. But you know, the one thing about Jesus is he doesn't ever call off the mission. He keeps searching. He never stops. It says here, Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? He may find it that same day, or he may take another day, or another day, or another week. He goes and looks until he finds it. He doesn't say, I'm going to search for seven days, and then I've got to get back to the 99. No, he searches until he finds it. And it's not easy, because lost sheep get dehydrated and disoriented. And if the shepherd approaches too fast, it could spook and actually run right over the edge of a cliff. I heard about one shepherd who almost spent a whole day approaching a lost lamb, trembling, before it would finally accept his help. Does he not leave the 99 and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And isn't that our mission, should we choose to accept it? Does a church still engage in search and rescue operations? Or are we too busy keeping the machinery of the church running? Do we use up all our energy to keep the 99 happy? 
You know who the most important person at Thornhill is? It's not any of us. The most important person is the one who is not here this morning because they're really lost. They're out there somewhere. And to the Good Shepherd, that is his priority. That's what matters the most. And I need to realize that. It's not about me because I am one of the 99. And Jesus is willing to leave me to go look for the one who is lost. You know, that's not North American Christianity. These days, everybody is looking for a church that will meet their needs. That's their priority. And when people talk about their church, they say, well, I like this and I don't like that. It's Goldilocks Christianity. I don't like it when it's too hot and I don't like it when it's too cold. I only like it when it's just right. Well, who cares what we like? Who cares? We are the righteous. We've already been found. Our opinions don't matter anymore. Not when there's lost people who need to be saved. That's what really matters. That is the priority. Rather than finding a church that will meet our needs, it's much more important that our church finds ways to seek and to save the lost. And that's hard work. You know, you put a certain amount of work in coming here this morning because you don't look like you did when you got out of bed. You re were able to repair at least some of the damage. And I appreciate that. <laughs> so you're looking pretty good. But it wasn't that hard to get yourself ready and come to church. But looking for the lost, now that takes a lot more effort. For rescuers on Vancouver Island, bushwhacking at twilight is not a lot of fun. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Years ago, I realized that as a pastor, I was spending 99% of my time with the 99. All I was ever doing was spending time with Christians. And that's just not right. I was spending all my time trying to keep Christians happy so they wouldn't start looking for another church that would meet their needs. That's when I decided to spend time with people who did not go to church. And I just needed to find something I had in common with them. You know, these days you could join an essential oil cartel and, and just have a great time. And I understand that because I also have some essential oils. They're in my garage. Pennzoil, Quaker State, WD-40. Well, I, I did find some people who don't go to church that I had something in common with. I joined two camera clubs, one in St. Albert and one in Edmonton. And for years, I spent at least one night a week with the kind of people that Jesus was looking for. And although I talked about God to them a lot, they weren't really that interested. Most of them are quite content to be lost. But I persevered, and what happened is I made a lot of good friends, and eventually I had 
two opportunities to pray with them, one for salvation, one for healing. But that's not a lot in, in over 10 years. That's not a lot. But that's what search and rescue is like. Because even if one is found, it's worth it. Because verse 7, I'll tell you, in the same way, there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous who do not need to repent. Just imagine how Jesus felt this week about Lily. How the angels felt. The rejoicing. He was more excited about that than what's going on here this morning. That's why when uh, we moved to Calgary and Gisela invited us to get involved with international students, it was just a great idea. And I'll tell you, with international students, there's so many more opportunities to share our faith than there was in the photography club. It's just tremendous. And you know, still people will say, you know, why, do we, why do we do soccer camp? Why do we spend all that effort? Well, now we know. We've heard it today. But the questions continue. Why, why do we have stampede breakfast? Why do we do spaghetti dinners? Why do we hand out packages to the homeless? We don't see them come to church. Well, that's not really the point. The point is we cannot spend all of our time with the 99. We have to go after the lost. We need to look for opportunities to connect with people who need the Lord. Because if they're not going to come to us, we have to go to them. The shepherd didn't say, okay, we're going to stay right here with the flock and just wait until that sheep finally finds its way back. No, that never would have happened. And you know, when you're thinking about the lost, it's very important that you don't treat them as targets. You treat them as people created by God who have intrinsic worth. And here's the point. We treat them as people who are more important than us. That's what really got me this week. They are more important than us. In God's eyes, we all have the same value, but as far as priorities go, they are more important than us. That's the shocking part. That's what really got to me. We are the 99. The Lord's main concern is not keeping us happy. Are you unhappy today because there's something about our church that you don't like? Who cares? That's not the point. We are the 99. His priority is searching for the one who is lost and saving them. The shepherd takes good care of us, but that's not his main concern because they are more important than us. And I've been telling that myself that all week long when I see someone. This person is more important than you are. And it makes a difference. That's why I get uncomfortable with some of these theological systems that say we are the elect, you know, we are the elite. We are one of God's VIPs. There's something wrong with that attitude. If you're a Christian, 
Christian faith gives you an attitude of superiority. You need to recalibrate your faith. Because in this present age, the people that don't come to church are even more important than the people that do. And that is shocking. But a follower of Jesus Christ can never have a superior attitude. A superiority complex is a spawn of Satan. In the same passage where Paul writes about Jesus lowering himself, it says, In humility, consider others better than yourself. I have to start doing that. Considering others better than myself. Philippians 2.3. That's radical. That could turn the world upside down. And Paul himself had that attitude. In 1 Corinthians 59, he says, I'm the least of the apostles. If you turn the book of Acts into a movie, it would be starring Peter, James, and John, co-starring Barnabas, Silas, Stephen, and at the very end, Paul. I am the least. In Ephesians 3.8, Paul goes even lower. He says, I am less than the least of all God's people. I am the least important person in this church today. Without question, I am the least. Every Christian is more important than I am. And then he goes even lower than that. In 1 Timothy 1.15, he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the worst. I'm the worst. That's what humbling yourself and lowering yourself looks like. What if we could cultivate that attitude that others are more important than us? To God, everyone has infinite value, but right now, the ones outside the church are more important than the ones who are inside because that's his priority. It is so important that Jesus would leave us to our food, fun, and fellowship and focus his efforts on them. And if that's the kind of God we have, then those are the kinds of people that we need to be. And I tell you, in the same way, there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Does that shock you? Don't ever forget what God told you today. Apply it in your life every single day. And watch what happens. Father, we thank you. Thank you for clarifying this for us. Because we have basically spent our whole life thinking that it's all about us. That we are the important ones. We're in, we... We got saved. We worship you. We're the most important people in the world. No. They are more important than us. Because you would leave the 99. And you would look for the one who is lost. Lord, help us to realize that others are more important than us. And if we can get that into our heads and into our hearts, 
we will be different people and we'll be a different church. And it will be to your honor and glory. We just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.